Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the, monitoring the chat room now. So, Rav, you know, say hello to everyone and add your words of wisdom for the day. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you do like to ask me spontaneous questions. Words of wisdom for the day. You know, I'm having some issues adjusting to summer being over and winter coming so one of the things i'm trying to do is the danish concept of hygge which is to do with coziness so rather than being sad that it's not nice and warm outside i think it's time to start making the house cozy and focus on those aspects of it so having friends over having the hot chocolate around the fire having that gentle music playing um, it's about finding the positive aspect, how you can turn everything around. And when you find the positive, everything becomes a whole lot more fun. Yep, me and the groundhog. I'm very positive about summer coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In this week's Spotlight, I would like to discuss dreams. Now, I'm not addressing the dreams we have while sleeping. Indeed, rather, I want to focus on our dreams of prosperity, happiness, success, relationships, and the like. We all have goals, ambitions, desires, passions, and so forth that marches forward toward the realization of our dreams. The retirement cottage in the woods, the trip to Europe, the boat we have always wanted, the time to relax and read by the seaside, and on and on. Think, what are your dreams? Most of us work every day in one way or another, either toward or away from our dreams. Oh, we may say we dream about having plenty of money when we retire, as an example. But are we doing our part to realize that dream? It's easy to wait until tomorrow to begin investing or saving while we spend on something today. But does that get us any closer to our dreams? I've always believed that one of the best investments anyone can make is in themselves. Knowledge is power, and more so today than ever. Think about that for a moment. For how much do you know about things like, well, the markets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, commodities, and so forth? How much do you know about economics? The multiplier factor, M1, M2, interest rates, inflation, currency fluctuations, etc. If you own your own business, how much do you know about selling it? Do you have an exit strategy? Should you have one? 
Have you considered the market? Who might your buyer be? And how many potential buyers are there? What is your competition and what makes you more valuable than the competition? Is your equipment older and would it therefore be easier and more affordable to just start a new business and to buy yours? What if you're like the many who are thinking about wanting a business? What is it that you should be asking? What is it you should be looking at? What kind of detail is going to be important? These are all the kinds of questions or the backside of, of knowledge that you should be asking or considering when you start thinking about manifesting your dreams. For dreams become real only when we are smart about working toward them. Whatever your dreams, it is my hope that you realize them. Indeed, my life's work has been all about providing tools and technology that facilitate empowering you to truly experience the wonderful cornucopia of joy that life holds for everyone. When you're prepared, when you're focused, all you need to do is learn what it is you need to succeed and then implement the plan to achieve it. And you can do this if you obtain the necessary knowledge and believe in yourself. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I think that's an important subject. It's really interesting, you know. There are, I mean, I've got so many friends and family and whatever who have their own businesses, and you often hear about people, it's almost as though they have bought themselves a job. And as long as they have the business, well, then they have income, but they don't think any further than that. So as as I said, I've got plenty of contacts who end up passing their business on, but they don't get anything out of it. There isn't any cushion in there for their retirement or for their dreams. It's like, well, they purchased a job and now the job's over and they don't have anything. So yeah, planning ahead and um, having something that you can pass on to someone else or just having enough cushion to enjoy retirement is a big deal. And most people don't do that. That's second payday, and we'll be talking to our guests today, but that second payday comes when you sell that business, if if that's your exit strategy. And, uh, you know, as, as we'll get into more importantly today, and there's a large number of people. In fact, the survey data says that um, there are an estimated number of business owners in this country of 20.4 million And further, given a choice of starting their own business or working for someone else, 57% of Americans would opt for the former, while 40% would choose to work for someone else. Among people who are actually employed, however, the margin in favor of being their own boss is even greater, 61% to 38%. So we all dream about owning our own business, more than 20 million people do own their own business. So if we're not in a place where we have spent our lives building a business, then we're usually looking to how we could buy a business. And without having the real, you know, the knowledge that you really knew, you, you really knew, you really should know, uh, many people end up uh, 
wasting it all. As you say, they walk away from the business with nothing because they can't uh, they can't get that second payday. And we'll talk about a lot of that today. And or they invest in a business and the data shows 95% of them in five years are gone. Um, not very promising without that knowledge and that preparation. But our guest today is going to share with us how we can avoid those obstacles and maximize our opportunities. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Julian Mussolino, and we discussed his work and book, The Soul Fallacy. Elizabeth wrote, I think the way your guest dismissed the white crows is nothing more than anecdotal, ignores alternative possibilities, and therefore is not very scientific. David wrote, Hi, Eldon. I just heard your most recent show with Julian Mussolino. I have lots of respect for the research and work he's doing, but in light of everything he says, I would like to share something miraculous with you. My intentions for the night of this experience were, one, let go of all that doesn't serve me, two, self-love, three, inner peace. I experienced a miracle in every sense of the word early Sunday morning, September 30th, 2018. I saw God. I'm not talking about a thought in my mind or just feeling in my heart. I experienced God with my own two eyes and all of my senses. All that is unseen made itself visible visible to me. It shook me to my core as every cell in my body was filled with this divine presence of unconditional love. I no longer believe there is something bigger than all of us. I know it. We are all going to be okay. We are all being cradled. This message is for everybody were the words that came to me over and over. I'm a new man, forever changed. Well, all I've got to say to that is, wow, uh, David, uh, that's, uh, that's a wonderful experience, I'm sure. What do you, what do you think, Ravinder? I think, I think that it's an interesting experience. I don't know. I have questions. <laughs> okay. I'm a little bit more skeptical. That's, that's all right, Richard I wrote. I just glanced at your archives. Man, oh man, you guys are just amazing. What a truly wonderful thing it is that you do. Another smart, fascinating show. Moving on, Leela wrote, Thank you for your wonderful Intertalk recordings you've made available to us. I've been listening to Serenity, which has helped me a lot to keep my mind still and calm. You know, I use that one a lot myself, Leela. And Joy wrote, your intertalk CDs are wonderful. My subconscious mind was very messed up by a horribly traumatic childhood, so much so that only the negative half of my brain surfaced. By listening to your CDs, the positive half surfaced for a record three weeks, leading me to think it was permanent. Divine guidance is what led me to read your book, Choices and Illusions. I didn't know why until you mentioned the intertalk CD using both halves of your brain. Thanks. I had wonderful results. Haven't stopped enjoying it yet. Anything's possible with spirit, plus it's human helpers. Happy thoughts to you. I guess we're human helpers. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You're going to opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, 
at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, The Silver Tsunami, with our special guest, Attorney Michael Lasky. What is a silver tsunami? The silver tsunami, also known as the gray tsunami, is a metaphor used to describe population aging. Think of it this way. The baby boomer generation is retiring, and therefore there are many forms of silver tsunamis, either near or upon us. As such, many questions arise, ranging from how this may affect health care to what will happen to all those businesses held privately when the owners retire. And what sort of economic effect may this have on our society? Well, the latter is the subject of today's show. Let me tell you a little more about Mr. Lasky who's been with us before on this show. Michael Lasky is a practicing patent and trademark attorney and founding partner of Altera Law Group and is also with Stoll Rives, a Seattle offer. He is also an internationally recognized speaker on the subject of making companies more valuable and profitable to investors or future sale, and he speaks four languages. In addition to his law degree, Michael has a degree in electrical engineering, is a published author of several books, including his latest book, The Good Brand. This is a book, by the way, The Good Brand, How Companies Create Valuable Brands that everyone should read. And, and I don't, even if you're not going to buy a business, it's knowledge that you'll profit from. If you're selling a business, you absolutely must read this book. Okay. <clears throat> The book is also a companion to a training course called Brand Boot Camp, and we'll learn more about that today. So on that, let's get our guest in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Michael Lasky. Hi, Eldon. Nice to be here. It's good to have you back, sir. I always As wonder you if know, the technology is going to work. <laughs> As you know, uh, from your prior visit, our audience likes to know three things. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, and for the benefit of those who may have missed our last show, what are you passionate about? And what led you to consider today's topic? Well, I got into today's topic, which is basically how to get out of a business that you've started. And, and for those who haven't started one, it's, it's entirely relevant to know how to get out before you even start. Because, to be honest, in this country, the only real way of making a substantial living is by creating your own business. And, uh, in fact, the, the new tax law that went into effect this year is uh, put the, uh, the final nail in the coffin of being an employee with respect to um, – uh, getting tax deductions for things you spend, even supporting your employer. So it's almost crazy not to start a business. And even if that means starting it part-time, you got to do it. But there's one thing you should keep in mind when you start your business is how are you going to get out of it or what do you want out of it? And to, to fail to understand that is to miss what we you already called the second payday. You get paid as you do your business to make you know, making money at what you do. But the business, if you structure it correctly, can be worth more than all the money you created while you had it. 
if you don't think about that second payday, uh, well, that might be the big one. Okay, Michael, you heard today's spotlight. What have I got wrong there? Uh, I don't think you had anything wrong. I think uh, let me take your story about dreams because I know it's very important. And and we all have dreams about what we want to do. And you know, the key to turning a dream into a business is not be fixated on the exact dream that you have. For example, I wanted to be a uh, a movie director. Well, I'm still not a movie director. But I've been in several videos, and uh, I've created scripts, and I've done a lot of things that were an adjunct to the business I'm in right now. I learned that teaching what I do by video is actually far more effective than writing it in words. So, you know, I got to be my director, but it wasn't the core of my life. But it, it still met one of my dreams, and yet I could make a living out of it. So the idea of taking a dream and turning it into something a little different than what you thought at first is the key to success. And frankly, it's the, the key to success in most things is look at something you've seen already done, twist it just a little bit, and then deliver it back to the market. And amazingly, they want it. You know, I'm, I'm partial here, and I'm going to admit that right up front. Um, you and I have have had some, uh, well, we've done some business together. But you have an important specialty, as far as I'm concerned, among attorneys, and and that's your approach to helping clients do better in their lives and business. I mean, it's not just about defending them or just about, you know, uh, watching out for traps. You actually work to help people improve the quality of their lives, their income, their, their net worth, and more. Um I've heard it said, and I've long believed, that if you buy stocks, buy stocks in a business that you understand and one that you would buy the business. You'd buy the entire business. Were you able to do so? In other words, you believe and have enough knowledge about it that, wow, this is a business I'd like to own. How exactly does your work help define what businesses are worth paying for and what business people can do to improve the saleability of their business. All right, let's get down to the hardcore. When you buy a car, you're looking for some kind of value or experience or something, but you're looking at it from the buyer's perspective, and that's exactly the way you need to look at it. If you're the seller of the car and you're not conscious of the buyer's desires and what they're looking for, then you're, you know, you're sticking in the West and listening in the East, as they say. And this is what happens almost all the time with business owners, who, especially those who are self-made successes, which is wonderful, and there are many of them, and, they, and they, they totally believe in what they do. And when they try and sell the business, they are selling themselves instead of selling the business. And the, the greatest failing of the, uh, most business owners or business small business owners and, and understand that 98% of all businesses in the United States are small businesses. The big ones you hear about really aren't that numerous and they don't employ that many people. It's all the others. So the, 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 the owner of a small business has to realize that the buyer needs to obtain something from that business when the owner leaves. What if the business is a me company? That is, the business exists because the buyer is charismatic, is effective, a great salesperson, whatever it is, but I'm sorry, not the buyer, the seller. And when the seller leaves, what is left? So we call this the transferable value problem. And that is when you own a business, you have to be thinking about what it is you're going to sell and why would the buyer want it. 
Now, in most businesses, we think we have products. Well, they're really not for sale. They're just inventory. We might have real estate. and Well, real estate has some sort of basic value. Ultimately, every business is valuable because of its reputation. And reputation itself is not a transferable asset. So if Mr. or Ms. Smith wants to sell their business and they are the business, then the business is worthless because they can't sell themselves. However, if they take that reputation and over years convert that into a brand, a brand can become a legal uh, item called a trademark. And trademarks are, are saleable and hence brands are saleable. And if you look at the value of just about every business that you have ever heard of, I can tell you that 95% of their business value is tied up entirely in their brand, essentially the reputation. In other words, people come to them because they remember why they came in the first place, they enjoyed the experience, and they came back. That's reputation embodied in brand. Okay, now, as a follow-up and to flip the coin over, there's a belief out there that if you think you're going to buy a business and not make any changes, just sit back and prosper, then you probably shouldn't buy that business. Why is that, Michael? Well, the first reason is, you, well, you may be buying some incredible skeletons in the closet, and, and this leads to the, the, the second major failing of business owners in the sales transaction is there is a process called due diligence and it sounds very legalistic and it is, but it's basically about finding all those skeletons, the closet, and they can be things that you would never consider a skeleton, such as you have key employees who are in no way obligated to stay with your company. And for example, in California, don't even can't be controlled under a non compete agreement. So when you sell your business, what if all those key employees walk out the door with the knowledge in their head? Well, the buyer's going to know that. They're going to see that as a risk. And the only way you can prevent that is if the key employee information is not enough to destroy the company because the reputation and brand are far more valuable than any particular employee in the company. So this is another failing of business owners to recognize that it's all about what you can transfer, not about what you think is valuable. I got you, but I want to follow up on the due diligence. Do you think it's a good idea when you're buying a business to check out 1099s and W-2s? And if so, why? Well, you're asking probably a broader question of, you're talking about the buyer checking out all of these right. tax Right, the buyer issues. coming in. You're, you're buying a business. You've got your representations. You're doing your due diligence. What role might be appropriate to checking out 1099s and W-2s filed by the owner of the business that you're buying over the past few years? Well, of course, you don't want to buy into a tax problem, but that's often avoidable by not buying the business, but buying the assets of the business. So there's a way that is well known to avoid some of these skeletons. But think about other skeletons. For example, you have a successful business, you have a successful team, they, they're likely to stay with you, you've even got a successful brand. But it's a service business where you can't find more people who know the subject matter and they're hard to train. In other words, you created a, an unscalable business. So part of creating a successful business that can be sold is, of course, reputation, brand, uh, getting your infrastructure right, but also building a business that can be grown. Because if I'm going to buy your business, I'm not going to want to buy it in its current form. 
you're going to ask for more money than it's worth on a, a yearly basis. You're going to ask for a multiple of that year. And I could never pay you back unless I can scale the business up. So fundamentally, if the business can't be made better than the way it is you have it, why would I buy it? All right. I've heard that one of the reasons you might want to check out a 1099 is to look at how the proprietor has paid themselves and uh, and the history of that. But, uh, you know, that's, well, look, that's just... I, let me address Go that. ahead. Yeah, please. Put it in a better way. I, 1099s are really, like, easy to follow. But what about the the owner who has been running the business, him or herself, for years, and has been funding their boat, or they have a number of transactions which are legal or otherwise. Let's say they're legal, but they basically suppress the profit in the balance sheet. In other words, they're doing investments which are perfectly okay, but right. their balance sheet shows that they're not as profitable as they could be. And what they do is they go to this, the buyer and they say, well, you know, this is not really how it is. Well, how is the buyer supposed to know that? So basically, if you're going to sell your business, you better run it as a tight ship and, you know, it, you got to give up those perks that are going to um, uh, drain profits because they're going to cost you many times over in the ability to sell that company. That's exactly so, what I was going. All right. We have a break coming up. So we're speaking with attorney Michael Lasky about his work and book, The Good Brand, How Companies Create Valuable Brands. And if I were you, I would go get this book. I have read the book twice. I think it's very powerful and very important. Whether you're buying or you're selling, and as Michael points out, listen, in today's marketplace with the tax law change creating a part-time business, whatever that might be, out of your home, you're foolish not to do so. We may take up some of that when we come back. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at brandcentering.com. One word, brandcentering.com. Now, we have a video for you examining supply and demand issues with regard to selling a business during the silver tsunami. So if you're not already in the chat room, now's the time to get on over there. And again, you can do that by simply going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with attorney Michael Lasky about his work and book, The Good Brand, How Companies Create Valuable Brands. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at brandcentering.com. Uh, by now, you know, we ask our guests for music that's meaningful. And sometimes our guest is telling us about music that's personally meaningful in ways, you know, of our favorite personal tune, you know, that song, Our First Love, and, uh, you know, we shared together with him. Today's choice is different, and it's an important choice. So, Michael, Funky Town by Lips Incorporated is what we just played. Tell our audience why you chose this one. Well, first, Eldon, I wasn't sure I was going to get you to play it, so I'm really impressed. (laughs) Uh, Well, I love the music. Why not? Well... Well, then you weren't alone. So, so here's the story. First of all, it is not my favorite song. And my backup plan was Norwegian Wood. But this one has more meaning uh, in a different way. It means something with, related to our topic today. So Funky Town was a completely manufactured band and song and concept. It was created by Stephen Greenberg in Minneapolis sometime in the 70s. And uh, he was a disc jockey. He wasn't a uh, musician, but he said, I'm going to write myself a single and I'm going to make it a hit. And he found Cynthia Johnson, also in uh, Minneapolis, and she was a singer, but not well known. And they wrote this from scratch, got it together, put it out on the radio, and it became the second most popular single ever produced. Now, that's pretty amazing. It's a kind of a cool song. It doesn't have a lot of meaning. The meaning, by the way, if you want to know, is that uh, Stephen was tired of living in Minneapolis and he wanted to move to Funky Town, which his word for New York. So uh, that's a story behind it. But it's really an entrepreneurial story of, geez, I can create the second biggest hit in all of time as a single. And uh, Madonna, Madonna is number one somewhere. And, uh, well, that's not a bad thing for a home project. No, no, that's a you know that's that's a great example. Um, and in fact, I, I'm going to switch just a little bit from where I wanted to go and, and take a question to you that uh, I brought up a little bit and then was asked in our uh, chat room during the break. The tax laws have really changed. Um, why should someone consider? creating a part-time business, if not, you know, a business of their own, at least a business that they're running concurrently with uh, whatever their employment might be in today's tax environment? Well, let's first start out with why create a part-time business. And then the simple answer to that is not everybody has the courage, conviction, uh, maybe stupid enough to quit their day job and go for it. And I totally understand that. At some point, you do have to make that cut. But it is a little bit easier to start something. And nowadays, with the Internet, there's so much that can be done in virtual time than real time. So that's, that's the part-time part. The, the tax part, and, and I'm not a tax attorney, but this is pretty simple stuff. Uh, the tax laws totally favor companies. Uh, not just big companies, but small companies. And then and uh, there's even a special reduction in taxes for certain companies. So uh, if you can minimize your taxes, you're basically giving yourself another payday. It's, it's uh, you know, as an individual, a, a worker, you have almost no control over the tap, tax implications of your life. You basically fill it out, send it in. Uh, in 
small businesses and, of course, big businesses, it's an entirely different world. And this new tax law, for better or for worse, and I don't know if we want to go there, has really shifted the balance in favor of business owners. All the deductions that you could possibly take legally have been <laughs> essentially taken away from uh, individuals who work for companies and their companies won't reimburse them for things. So if you want to get reimbursed for the things that help make the business work, the only way to do it is make a business out of it. So let me, let me, if I can, just set an example out there that I think everybody can relate to. Let's assume that you want to buy a new computer. And uh, so you look at that computer and you say, well, I'm going to buy this new Apple laptop, $3,500, $4,000, fully loaded all, all, all up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a YouTube channel and I'm, I'm, I'm going to blog, uh, orally blog on the things that I find interesting to myself. And I'll monetize that because YouTube makes that available. I'll monetize, you can monetize anything there. Now, whether you make a profit or you don't make a profit, you're going to be able to write off that computer. Um, is that right or wrong? Well, again, I want to warn you, I'm not a tax lawyer, but there's gotcha. some basic stuff here. Um, if you use something for business, and either incorporated or otherwise, to the extent that you're using it in a business, it can be depreciated, or now there's some huge front-end write-offs you could take. Now, I just want to warn you that if you're going to do a business that is a hobby, it's not really a business, and it maybe makes money and maybe doesn't, that may not qualify as a business. So you have to have a real business. But beyond that, if it's an element that you need to make the business work, whether it's a car or a, a computer or inventory or you name it, well, those are deductible from the expense, as an expense against the uh, profit of the company. So you're not paying taxes on what you had actually never made. As an individual, however, let's say you have that Apple computer and your office needs you to have one and they're not going to reimburse you for it. Well, previously there was a way to get part of it. Uh, based on a certain threshold. Well, that just went away. I can't understand on, in, in the world why that would go away, but it did. And there it is. So look at the difference between A and B. One gets a deduction and one gets an expense. Right. Okay. <clears throat> Let's shift back. Let's assume that you're going to buy a business. Um, and, and, you know, you're looking at it. I, one of the first questions you have to think about is, how am I going to add value to an existing business? On the contrary, or not contrary, but in addition, let's assume you own a business and you're thinking about selling it. You're going to have the same question. How do I add value to my business? What would you say are the best ways to examine the business, look at its weaknesses, and consider methods to add value. Well, let me take it from the point of view of the seller because it's really a mirror image for the buyer, and I'll just stick with the seller because it's something that I okay. think uh, we need to deal with. And, and first, let me give you a little background on the statistics. You gave a, a number of 20-some million businesses out there, and that's a good number. I'll give you a, a number of $1 trillion and... Uh, one trillion is the amount of money that should be changing hands in businesses of people who are going to sell. Now, we are in a very unusual time in history. Uh, you called it the silver tsunami, but you could really just say, imagine that all of the baby boomers who started in, the, in their businesses in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they did it at a time of enormous economic growth, and they started in a fantastic number of businesses, and they are coming to a point at which 
most of them don't want to acknowledge this, but they're going to need to get rid of their business one way or the other. Most of them are going to shut the doors, and that is it. Now, it's, whether they get their additional, what I call payday or not, is you know, maybe not important to you, but think about the employees that they're going to shut uh, businesses down around, and they're going to be unemployed. So this is a real national crisis, and so it's really important for this tremendous bulge in businesses that are going to come on the market uh, to be sold instead of going uh, being shuttered. Now, if you're one of those businesses, and if you're a young person starting a new business, I, I suggest that you start your business with the idea of how you're going to sell it at the first day, because it'll affect how you, you run it. But if you're one of those businesses and you know someday you're going to sell it, and it's probably a lot sooner than you think, then it's really important to make sure that you've done the things that make it attractive to a buyer. And especially now, because you're going to be in enormous competition with a lot of other businesses that have suddenly come online who may be of higher quality. So we're talking about making a business worth more. And it all comes back every single time to the same question. Ask whether your business is actually transferable. What is it the buyer is going to obtain when they buy the business? And if it turns out to be you or the employees or some intangible that cannot actually be transferred, you're dead. And that's, that's, that's the problem right away. And to increase the quality of the business, you want to be working on a trajectory. So let's suppose you uh, think you're going to sell your business in five years, whether it's a one-year-old business or a 50-year-old business. It doesn't make any difference. We're going to sell it in five years. might be sooner. might be later. What you want to do is create a business plan, basically a story of things that you are going to do and things that you can't do because you don't have the money to do it. That's just fine. What you want to do is tell the buyer that this is what I did with the capital I had, but this is what I set the business up to be able to do. In other words, I, scaled, I built a scalable business that if you infuse more capital, you can accomplish a great deal more. So example, uh, I'm building Instagram, and I make it, I put it on a server that will take uh, up to a thousand photos. Now, that would be an absurd idea. Nobody would ever do that, but because we know servers are very scalable, but you can imagine you could build some software or some other kind of business element that just won't scale. Well, when you go sell this to the, uh, the buyer, and the buyer could be Google, uh, you know, they're only interested in it if they can apply their immense financial resources, their immense talents, and make it bigger. And if you haven't thought about that, that could be the death knell of your business. And remember, you're competing with all those one trillion other businesses that are crowding for the same story, and only a very few of them will be top quality. You need to be one of them. <sighs> Let me, it, it, is it ever, I mean, are you ever just too late to do that, Michael? Do you ever, just, I mean, you, I, I hear what you say about this, you know, the baby boomers retiring. Let's assume that they're looking at selling in the next six months or the next year. What would you tell them? Would you tell them, hold off, uh, delay, uh, develop this plan, uh, change your, your brand or brand now? What would you tell them? Well, the answer is, you know, longer is better, but it's never too late to fix. And for example, developing this futuristic plan does not take a lot of time. It just takes a lot of creative thinking. Uh, when I, you know, my own expertise in brands and trademarks and intellectual property, 
I can tell you that around 70% of companies come to me ready to sell, and the first thing I find out is they don't actually own their brand. And we need to fix that pronto. I mean, it, it just doesn't do any good to keep pouring money into a hole that has no bottom. So you're saying, well, I can't change the company name. Well, you could modify the company name, and then we can get ownership of the company name, and then we can do some some, some pre-due diligence. We can check out exactly what your buyer's going to find out right away and thwart that ability to kill the sale because we've addressed it. Even if we can't fix it, we can at least say, yes, we know about it. We think the implications are so-and-so, and here's our workaround plan. You don't always have to fix everything, but you have to get there before the buyer tells you, oops, uh, I guess you didn't think of that. Right. So let's assume you have a company, and uh, let's just say you're Dale. And so Dale creates a company, and it's called Dale and Sons or Dale and Family. And along the way, Dale develops a brand. Uh, I don't know. what you Just pick a brand. Ladders. That's a brand, okay? Uh when he gets ready to sell, is he selling his trade name or is he selling the company? And if he's selling Dale and family, doesn't he need to rebrand the name of his business? Well, you shouldn't automatically assume just because somebody used their surname, their last name as a company name, that they're in trouble. I mean, Henry Ford did that. It's not easy because there happen to be a lot of Fords, but sometimes you rise above all of them. Um, but, uh, I mean, if your family name was Google, you have a problem because there's no way you're going to get any airspace. Um, so whether you're selling the company name or the product name depends on what the buyer wants. Very often, they're not that interested in the company as such. They're interested in your connections with clients and customers and so forth. But if it's a product or service that's doing well, then that may be all you need. And the, the company itself is not that important. There are many companies you don't think about. Uh, for example, one that, of course, you know is Procter & Gamble, but Procter & Gamble is one of those companies, unlike Kraft, that sells its products under every name but Procter & Gamble. There are a few that have sneaked out as P&G products, but for the most part, it's like uh, uh, the, their shampoos and all these other things. They all have their own brands, and, and Procter and & Gamble is a company that sells and buys brands all the time. Now, Kraft is different. Kraft puts the name on every single product, and consequently, it's much harder for them to trade off a product. Well, if you have a number of products that have independent brand names, you're golden. And if your company name is a problem, it may not really be a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, well, for the benefit of those people out there that may be thinking about buying a business, what would you say uh, are the the top legal mistakes that they should look to avoid well both buying and selling uh well the first thing is it is a good time to buy a business businesses there's lots and lots of them this is only going to get better for the next seven or eight years because of that bulge so it is a good time uh, of course you want to be looking for quality and quality could mean different things for your business depending on what it is this is very self-serving, but I know not everybody's going to hire me, but the important thing is know what you don't know. You know, and in the, in the world of law, there are so many traps. I mean, just in my area of intellectual property, you know, it's a lifetime profession just to know what's what. And there, you really need help here. I mean, when you buy a house, you get a, a real estate lawyer to do the closing. Well, buying a business is so much more involved. 
and selling businesses too. And you want to have good counsel who knows what they're doing to point out what you're buying so that you are buying quality. Uh, I'll give you a simple example that just goes by very easily. Uh, In the course of a business, many companies are required to sign non-disclosure agreements for various reasons. They need to talk to some other company and they want to get information and so forth. And they just sort of sign off on those. And I have a video, if anybody wants to see it, on my website of how do you deal with that. And uh, there was uh, uh, the problem with non-disclosure agreements. I'm sorry, Michael. Let me cause you to pause right there. Yeah. Give that website where they can see this video. Uh, I think the best place to find it is at my law site, alteralaw.com. Or just send me an email and I'll send you a link. Uh, so anyway, let's suppose you signed a non-disclosure agreement and you didn't look at it carefully. And it has in it a perpetual requirement that you keep certain things secret. Well, you know, you probably never thought much about it. But now the company that wants to buy you is a direct competitor of the one you signed that non-disclosure agreement. And it never expired. So now when they buy your company, they're buying your obligations. Now, this is a really easy way to ruin your company, and it happens really daily. So you have to be on board uh, and realize that the buying company is going to look deep inside you. And as a seller... You want to start your house cleaning well in advance because I promise you they will find it. And, of course, the best advice is get good counsel, people who know what to look for, and they will find what they need to find. You don't want to be surprised. All right. So now for our listeners out there, we will post that website in the chat room for you. Ravinder is right this minute contacting Mr. Lasky to get the um, actual website. Um you know, one of the things that I learned about or learned from your book, that's the best way to put it, were something you called the three rules of branding. And I think, you know, um, to me personally, that was probably the most important message. Um, the, the stories you tell and how you characterize it are very, very powerful. Your book is very readable. Share with our audience, what are those three rules of branding? Okay, so I boiled down the whole world of brands to three rules, and I'm sure there are going to be marketers who tell me, no, there are 7,000 rules, and I'm sure that's true. But there's three, if you get right, you have a much higher probability of being successful. So the first element in branding is when you pick a brand, it has to be capable of being a brand. So you gave that example of this guy had a product called Ladders. Well, if it relates to that thing that you step on to get higher up on the ground, up from the ground, a ladder, then it cannot be a brand. So your first mistake is the one that's so counterintuitive, which is don't call the product what it does because then you can never own it. So that's rule number one. Got to be brandable to be a brand. Number two, you got to own it. And just because you registered your company with the secretary of state of whatever state or you've got a domain name gives you absolutely no ownership in that brand. You have to do other stuff, register in the federal, uh, federal trademark systems and so forth. And you need to search to find out if somebody is prior to you. And in my book, there's a very interesting little picture of the Amazon bookstore located in Minneapolis 29 years before Amazon.com. And Jeff Bezos got a very bad surprise one day being told, we love what you've done to our brand and we'd like it back now. And he would have lost the name, but for the $30 billion he had in reserve, which he could buy his way out of a problem. Not everybody can do that. So the rule number two is 
if you have gotten through number one and you you got a good brand name, now you got to own it. So you need to know if you own it and then take the steps to make sure. And rule number three is that brands are not just words that you stick on your website. They have to have meaning. You have to create what we call positioning. In other words, you merge the, the, the law of branding with the rules of marketing and you give a message to your brand that says, this is why you should matter. This is why my brand should matter for you. And you stick with it. And there are many companies that do this subliminally. Uh, Apple does it by making beautiful products that are easy to use. But they never talk about it. But they always do it. And every other company who gets their brand right follows rule number three. It's really that simple. You, you make it sound very, very simple. I know this. The book... Uh the book is probably the most informative book that I have read on business in, well, in my lifetime. And uh, so I'm going to suggest that everybody out there, whether you're thinking about getting into business or getting out of business, go get the book, The Good Brand. Michael, tell everybody, if you will, in a minute or so, how best to contact you, get your advice, get your book, um, see your videos, etc. Well, I'll give you the short email address, the easy one, mlasky, M-L-A-S-K-Y, at mlasky.com. And it'll find my, its way to me, and I'll be happy to reply. All right. Again, the book, The Good Brand, How Companies Create Valuable Brands by Michael Lasky. Michael, I, I, again, I want to thank you very, very much for your time and your willingness to share your expertise and uh and I guess more importantly, you know, I take away from our interactions on the radio and otherwise, you genuinely care about the people that you help and about, uh, you know, doing the best uh, for them. It isn't just a job to you. And my congratulations for that, sir. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for the courage of playing Funky Town. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Until next time, then, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>